0: We're looking at the book of James. We've called it undiluted. Um, It's a deeper look at the book of James. And we've had a great time, I think, of this last five weeks looking at this book together. Uh, This last chapter is a challenge. And uh, I've been trying to think about how does this last last chapter, how does it connect up? It seems very disparate, very disconnected. Three chunks of scripture, really. Um, and, And I kind of think that I have found a way to connect it up. But I need to ask you a question first. What makes you grumpy? If I was to put you, sir, on a program, grumpy old men, what would you rant about? But do you know what? It's not just grumpy old men. There are grumpy old women around. Yeah, you're too right. And I'm, I'm not just talking about a TV series neither, okay? There really are. But if I was to put a grumpy old man at this congregation on, on a soapbox, what would you rant about? I'm not going to tell you all the things that I would rant about, Okay pants above the trousers. Why? (laughs) Just don't do it. It's wrong. Wrong. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm I'm not going to talk about people that moan about how busy they are all the time. Like it's a badge. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to rant about, what I'm going to to be grumpy about. But when we come to James chapter 5, when I read through it, it reads like we have a ranting pastor on our hands. And that's what I've called this week's talk, a ranting pastor. But you know, he's ranting at the start of chapter 5, but he's not just ranting, even though he's very direct, and he's very truthful, and he's very hard-hitting. He's doing it with a purpose. He's doing it because he loves the people of God. And you know, sometimes the kindest thing you can do is just to tell the truth. And whether it's direct or whether it's soft, whether it's loud or whether it kind of comes with some empathy, if you love someone, you tell them the truth. And what we've got here in James chapter 5 is the heart of a pastor. It starts with a rant and it softens off as we go through uh, the thing this morning. But there is a connection through these three chunks of scripture. And I believe it's this, undiluted faith is a how-to faith when it's applied. In other words, what James does in these three chunks of Scripture in chapter 5 is that in each of the chunks of Scripture, he gives us a practical application of how to apply our faith. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at these three ways that James says this is how you are to apply this undiluted faith to your life. So if you've got the Bible, James chapter 5, and we're going to go to James on his soapbox. Now
1: listen, you rich people. Weep and wail for the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded your wealth in these last days. Look, the wages that you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields, well, they're crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters are reaching the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the days of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men. And they were not opposing you.
0: <sighs> okay. <laughs> that's When I read it through, that's what I heard. That's what I heard. It's like that kind of rant. We need to understand what is it that James is actually saying. And I believe this first chunk of Scripture is, is, is it encourages how to value. How to value. Now, who is James talking to and about when he says, you rich people? He's actually not primarily talking to the church in this, in this instance. You see, the, the, the Christians, the believers, they weren't in Jerusalem or in Israel at the time. They were scattered in other lands. James is writing to believers who were scattered through persecution or through migration. But James is talking to rich landowners and businessmen who are exploiting people, including the people of God, but others as well. And they're exploiting them for their own financial gain. And interestingly, that first verse that James read there in the message says this, and a final word to you, arrogant rich, take some lessons in lament. You'll need buckets for the tears when the crash comes upon you. Isn't that interesting? How relevant is that in our modern culture, in our world, when the crash comes upon you? You see, what James is saying is that you guys, you value wealth more than you value people. You put your trust, your counting on wealth more than anything else. You're putting your value in wealth. And he says, he says that you've got to be careful how you value wealth. See, in the day of James, there were three sources of wealth. There were clothes, there were corn and grain, there were gold and silver. But he says of, of corn and grain, that can rot. Of clothes that, that moths can eat them. Of gold and silver that they can be corroded or they can rust. And it's like the words of Jesus. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a real word for us to not value wealth. We need to see wealth for what it really is. Wealth is a gift from God. It's not a replacement for God. And I don't know, but none of you probably class yourselves as wealthy in this place. But actually, you are. Statistically, I always have trouble with that word. Statistically, um, you are in the top 2 or 3% wealthiest people on the planet, just because you, you live in this country. So actually, we're all wealthy in that sense. And wealth is a gift from God. James And the Bible does never say that wealth is sin or it's wrong. But it says, but listen, value wealth properly. See it as a gift from God, not as a replacement for God. Don't put your trust and your security in wealth. Because when the crash comes, you're in trouble if you do. And James is being saying, don't value wealth like that. Don't put your trust in wealth. Put it in God. Because there's no crash with God. Do you know that? There's no crash coming with God. And he goes on to say, be careful how you value people. You see, they were, so value, they were so valuing wealth that they looked at people as a means of exploiting in order to increase their own wealth. And so they weren't paying them what they should have paid them as wages. They were exploiting the vulnerable and the marginalized. They were living in luxury and they were treating the innocent almost in contemptible ways. And God says that Breaks my heart. And you know, one of the themes of James that we haven't brought out all that much, but it's a really strong theme, is the theme of social justice. Because actually in the end of chapter 1, the very last verse, that James says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, that you look after widows and orphans in their distress, and that you keep yourself from being polluted by the world. In other words, you look after those who can't look after themselves. Those who are vulnerable, you look after them. You use whatever wealth you've got in order to value people. You don't use people in order to build your wealth. You use wealth in order to value people. Does that make sense? And then in James chapter 2, that Simon looked at so well for us a few weeks ago. There's that whole theme of you don't just fawn all over the rich people, but the poor people. Those are the ones that actually have a bias towards because that's God's heart towards those who perhaps don't have a voice, don't have an ability in their own right to make their voice heard. That's who you lean towards is the poor. Undiluted faith values people over possessions every time. And you know, as a church, we have that as our heartbeat. We want to grow in this area. We want to grow in this area of reaching out in social justice and, and valuing those who don't have a voice. One of the reasons why the food bank is so important and it's been going two or three years now and it can drop under the radar. But you know, every week through this church, we feed lots of people who are struggling, who are caught in between benefit situations, who've hit on hard times. There's a crash come in their lives and we're able to feed them for a few days, which helps. This year, we're sending two teams to Zambia, again, to work with communities, the community of Amalo in northern Zambia, to work with widows and orphans, to kind of help and serve and support. You know, Faith Trust, the, the, the charity that's connected with us, that does such a lot of great work with young people. You know, they're doing work all across the borough now with the most hard-to-reach young people, those whose society has said, you're not going to make it. You're not going to get an education. You're not going to get a job. Those are the kind of people that we're trying to work with because that's God's heart. Amen? But you know, social justice is something for all of us to be aware of and for all of us to be engaged with. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pause for a moment. We're going to reflect. It's going to reflect. Before we go back to soapbox, we're going to reflect. James says how to value people. Just take a look at the screen and ask God to speak to you as you see these images and as you read these words. Let's just pray for a minute. I want to read over you a Franciscan prayer. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger Uh, injustice, oppression and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger and war so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and to turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world. So that you can do what others claim cannot be done. To bring justice and kindness to all our children and to the poor. Amen. Let's go back to James on his soapbox. Be
1: patient then brothers. For the Lord is coming. See how the farmer... He waits, he waits for the precious and valuable crop, for the land to yield that precious crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm. The Lord is coming, the Lord's coming is near so don't grumble against each other. You will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job and his perseverance and have seen that the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion And mercy, above all, my brothers, do not swear. Not by heaven or earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes. And your no be no. Or you will be condemned.
0: Firstly, James teaches us how to value. People over wealth, But secondly, James rants on his soapbox about how to wait, how to wait. And this is a challenge, I believe, in our culture. And the context is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, when I, when I was a teenager growing up in church, the, the, as soon as I heard the term, the second coming, all right? Anyone know what I'm talking about now? Anyone, if you know what I'm talking about. When you heard Jesus is coming again, the initial reaction was always, in my mind, fear. Because the two questions that I was most concerned about or that people told me I should be concerned about is when Jesus comes back, where will you be and what will you be doing? And as a 14, 15 year old kid, all right, that was quite a scary thought, all right, that Jesus could come back at any moment. And when he comes back, where are you going to be and what will you be doing? All right. And I remember this like uh, car sticker that someone used to talk about was, you know, Jesus coming back, be busy, you know, and that's what we used to think. We've got to be busy. We've got to be doing good things. We can't be in a bad place or, or whatever. And the whole fear motivation is not what God means when he talks about the second coming. Now, in, in the New Testament, there are three main Greek words that describe this thing called the second coming. The one is parousia, which means someone's presence or arrival. The other word is epiphany, which is where we get the word epiphany from. And that's the appearance of a god to a worshipper. Or it's like a Roman emperor coming to the throne. And the third word is apocalypsis, where we get the word apocalypse from. And that's the unveiling or laying bare. But let me tell you this morning about the second coming. What we do know for fact from the Bible about the second coming. Number one, Jesus is coming back again. Yes. Good. It shouldn't generate fear with us. Jesus is coming back again. Secondly, no one knows when it will happen. So don't buy any books that are trying to tell you they've worked out when it happens, because they haven't. The Bible is crystal clear, and yet all through history, we've got sidetracked by trying to work out the jolly numbers, and the dates, and the signs, and all this business. The Bible is clear. Nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. No one knows. It will be sudden, decisive, and glorious. And we need not fear his return if we know God. If we're in a relationship with God, we don't need to fear the fact that Jesus is coming again. But this is something else that we know from from fact from the Bible. How we wait for his return is really important. How we wait for his return is really, really important. Now, he could come back now. He could come back tomorrow. It could be a thousand years. It doesn't matter. We should live as if he's coming back and we should live ready. We need to be ready, not busy, but ready for his return. And there are four things I want to pick up out of this scratch. You see, undiluted faith is a how-to faith when it's applied. And James gets really practical in this chunk of scripture. And he gives us four things, I think, that we need to, to think about how we wait. Firstly, patiently. How many of you are very naturally patient people? Some of you, but most of us aren't. It's a struggle, isn't it? I have a massive struggle with patience. And yet James said that, that James and this James, three times in those first couple of verses of, of, of this chunk of Scripture. Patiently. Wait, patiently. Be patient, brothers. Be patient. The farmer, he's patient. So, so important that we learn patience. And this is a countercultural value. You know that, don't you? Now, this is going to get me ranting any minute now. I might have to go up there and do this next bit, okay? This is a countercultural value of patience. Let me read these descriptions to you and see whether you resonate with this. Patience is the ability to sit back and wait for an expected outcome without experiencing anxiety, tension or frustration. How do you think that's really easy? It's not, but that's what it is. We wait patiently for an expected outcome without anxiety, tension or frustration. That's so hard, isn't it? Here's another definition. Patience is the ability to let go of the need for immediate gratification. Be willing to wait. Come back to that in a moment. It's a trait that displays tolerance, compassion, understanding and acceptance of those who are different and slower than you. Patience is the ability to remain calm in turmoil, turmoil because you know God is in control. Now, those are great definitions. I don't know about you, but I think they're really difficult, don't you? That ability to stay calm and connected to God without anxiety, without frustration. That ability to wait without that need for instant gratification. And I want to suggest that our modern culture and our young people, and please, I'm going to sound like a grumpy old man here, but our young people are growing up in a culture which knows nothing of what I'm talking about. And there are two aspects of our modern culture and we're affected by it. The church is affected by it. And I believe with all my heart, these are things we have to fight against, not run with. Number one, what happens is that we have this whole thing of entertain me and entertain me now. We can't listen or for more than five minutes we say because we don't have the attention span. Do you know what? Not everybody has ADHD. ADHD is a real condition that affects real people, but not everybody has it. Sometimes we're just bored and we're lazy and we say we've got ADHD. Sometimes. And we say, oh, I, can't, I, can't, I need to be entertained and I need to be entertained right now. Do you know there's a church in Florida, in America, that is advertising that they're going, there is somebody from Florida here, I didn't realise that this morning, so pardon me. Uh, it's not your church, is it, Jason? It might be. Oh, fast track, fast track, rewind, rewind. They're advertising, I really hope it's not your church, they're advertising that they are running 22 minute long services. They guarantee you'll be in and out within 22 minutes and the message will be no longer than eight minutes. What that's doing is it's pandering to a consumeristic entertainment, I can't be bored, I'm too important, you have to entertain me, I have to be in and out kind of culture. That's not what we should be living like. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to have really, really long services. But what it means is that we need to learn that sometimes we need to wait patiently. And it's not all about entertaining the consumer. It's something about what do I want to learn from this experience? What do I want to gain? The other issue in our modern culture is that we have no sense of impulse control. Did you know that? We have no sense of we're going to wait for this. You see, what a lot of our young people are brought up in a culture now is if it's new, you've got to buy it and you've got to get it right now doesn't matter whether you can afford it or not, just go and get it. Guys, we have got to fight that. We have got to fight that. If we want to be godly people, we have to fight that kind of cultural trait. You know, many years ago, in in the 80s, I think, it was at a university in in America, Stanford, and uh, they ran this experiment on on what they call delayed gratification. And uh, this this experiment has not been bettered as far as I know uh, in terms of proving this point. What they did was they got these kids in this uh, laboratory kind of experiment, uh, five or six, I think they about four or five years of age, and they gave them a marshmallow, and they put a marshmallow in front of them, and they said, we're going to leave the room now. If you wait and don't eat the marshmallow, when we come back, we'll give you two. So they left and left the kids in with the marshmallows and the cameras and all that. And of course, some of the kids waited, and some of the kids couldn't wait, and they just took the marshmallow. And what they did was they did studies on that group of kids through their teens, through their 20s and into their 30s now because it was in the 80s. And time after time again, the research showed that those who were able to wait were more likely to do better at school, were less likely to get into crime and were more likely to stay in long-term committed relationships because they were able to wait. I want to say to you, and it is a bit of a rant this morning, I want to say to you, we have to fight the cultural push that says you don't have to wait, you can have it now, entertain me, I'm a consumer. We have to fight that. The reason we have to fight that is that the Bible says that if you want to have godly character, you cannot have it without patience. Because perseverance builds character, the Bible says. And when faith meets life's tests, it's patience that builds maturity. Do you know that? We don't get mature spiritually if we don't deal with this issue of delayed gratification and of how to wait patiently. And James speaks into this, I believe, with real passion. Secondly, though, he says we're to wait resolutely. In verse 8, he says, be patient and stand firm. You know, you're not going to stand firm if you don't know who you are. And can I just say, make another plug for Freedom in Christ that starts on April the 16th. That's a brilliant, brilliant course that many of you have been through. And you saw it on the video there. You saw people saying, you know, I got free. I, I heard this is who I am. And you will not be resolute. You will not stand firm if you don't know who you are. And, and I've been just inspired. I mean, I've been through the course as well. And I've been inspired reading names at the back there. Uh, you know, and, and I've read some names this morning. I thought, wow, you've been a Christian for years. You know more about the Bible than I do. You, you, you're incredibly, You You know loads. And yet you're going on freedom in Christ. That's not immaturity. That's maturity. And you may have been through it already. You may want to go through it again. Again, there's names up there and they've already done it. But they're going to do it again. That's not immaturity. That's maturity. That's saying, I want to know who I am so I can stand firm. It's a commitment, it's a big commitment. You'll have to give up some Monday nights, but you know what? If you want to wait patiently, if you want to wait resolutely, if you want to know who you are, then you'll do it. And I want to encourage you to sign up there at the back. Thirdly, graciously, verse 9. Love this little verse here. Don't grumble against one another. You know, and what he's really saying there is that don't fight with one another. Don't fall out with one another because the judge is at the door. In other words, Jesus is coming back. He's right here. Now, this is important. If there's anything that should cause us fear, it's this. The unity of the body of Christ is so important to God, so important to Him, that if He were to come back and we were at odds with one another, it would break His heart. That's why in John 17, you know, Jesus, the, the, the high priestly prayer Jesus says, you know, this is before the crucifixion thing plays out. He says, this is what I want to pray, that they would be one as we're one. This is my prayer. If I can pray one prayer for the church, it's that they're one. That we're one. Like we're one. God, Father, Spirit, you know, that we're they're one. And it's really important. And I think, and there's so many churches are destroyed. Destroyed because we're not gracious with one another. But if we live with the idea that the judge is at the door, that Jesus is coming back and he's right here, then perhaps we would talk to each other a little different. Or perhaps when we did have difficulties, which we do, we would resolve them. And we would try and put them right. Because when he comes back, we want him to find us unified. Amen? Gracious with one another. And finally, honestly, verse 12. This very interesting verse. Do not swear. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Uh, that, That wasn't in a legal context. That was in a personal context. What had happened in the day of James was that people had developed this practice of trying to add weight to the words that they said. So say, Mark, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll meet you next Wednesday night and I swear by the name of the Lord that I'll do that. That's what was happening. Because they were trying to like add weight to it. And James, James said, and the view of the New Testament is that every word you speak is uttered in the presence of God. So you don't need to make any oath. You don't need to swear anything. You don't need to cross your heart and hope to die. Because every word you say is uttered in the presence of God. So whatever words you say, make sure you do what you say and you say what you do. You don't have to add any weight to it. Your word should be weight enough. And then all of this is in the content. And then James talks then about this whole metaphor again that he's fascinated with of farming. And we've heard this before this year, haven't we? And he said, listen, while we wait for the second coming of Christ, we are not going to wait Clutching our Bible and our redemption hymnal, for those of you that know what I'm talking about, we're not clutching hold of our songbook and our Bible just waiting for Jesus to come and take us out of this horrible planet. That's not what's happening. While we wait for the second coming, we're involved in the harvest. And a farmer knows that. So while we wait for the second coming of Jesus, we're going to sow good seeds. We're going to reap fruit. We're going to break up our unplowed ground. We're going to seek the Lord until he comes. We're not going to wait passively. We're going to wait actively. And then on that day, whenever that day is, when he either comes or he calls us home, we'll go and we'll stand and we'll be with him. And that will be amazing. But we're going to wait patiently, resolutely, graciously, and honestly. And what I want to do this morning to respond to that is I want us to stand for a moment. Can we do that? Can I ask the band to come out. We're going to sing a hymn this morning. Not a redemption hymnal, but a modern version of a hymn. And this hymn speaks about the kind of going to heaven and that, the whole when, when we're there with God and all of that. And whether that's because he's come or whether because we go, it doesn't matter in one sense. But, but through it, there's this phrase, wonderful saviour, wonderful saviour. And I just want us to worship him for a few minutes as we sing this song. And just to say to God, to respond to God this morning saying, God, I want to be someone that waits well you know what I mean? I want to wait well. I don't want to be like this impatient person that I just want to wait well. I want to remain calm. I want anxiety not to grip me. Lord, I want to wait well. I want to wait resolutely. I want to wait graciously. I want to wait honestly. Because at any moment, you could come or you could call. And I want to be ready. Not busy, but ready for when you do. Because if you do, I want you to find, the Bible says that when he comes again, he's looking for faith. He's looking for faith on the earth. And I want to be someone who has that undiluted faith when Jesus comes. Amen? So let's sing. Father, you're so near, so precious to us, Lord. Help us to wait well. God, I pray this morning that there's anyone here who's struggling to wait. Perhaps, Lord, something that... You know, they want you to bring into their life something they're believing you for, something they're holding on for. God, I pray that you'd be there in their waiting and that, Lord, that you'd encourage them and that in that waiting, Lord Jesus, that they would grow, their faith would grow, their trust would grow. And Lord, at that moment when the waiting finishes and the arrival comes, that would be great celebration, I pray. But Lord, until then, Lord, let them wait well, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Take your seats. Thank you, guys. And so, for the last time, we are going to look at the uh, end of James chapter 5. So, let's go back to James on his soapbox. Are you hurting?
1: Then pray. Do you feel great? Or sing? Are you sick? Then gather the church leaders around you to pray for you and anoint you with oil in the name of the Master. Believing that prayer will heal you and Jesus will get you back on your feet. And if you've sinned, you'll be forgiven. Healed inside and out. Make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other so that you can live together, whole and healed. The prayer of a person living right with God has great power and is something to be reckoned with. Elijah, for instance, well, he was human just like us and he prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't for three and a half years. Then he prayed that it would rain and it did. The showers came and everything started growing again. My dear friends, If you know people who have wandered away from God, don't write them off. Go after them. Get them back and you will have rescued precious lives from destruction and prevented an epidemic of wandering away from
0: God. Thanks, James. When I read this last bit of James chapter 5, I kind of just sensed as I was reading it through that it was like James was just climbing down from his soapbox, you know? That heart of the pastor that's still there when he's really going for it and direct and ranting is there at the end as he steps down and says, is anyone in trouble then pray? And what you heard there was a, was a translation from the message version, which just kind of again puts it slightly differently to the one that you might have. And I believe that in this last section that we're going to look at in the book of James, the question that he's trying to address is how to respond. He's talking about how to value, how to wait. But then thirdly, how to respond to what happens in life. And there are just five or six quick things. Firstly, if you're troubled, pray. And that word for trouble there means suffering. but It doesn't just mean physical suffering. It means emotional suffering. It means disappointment. It means persecution. It means if you're in trouble in any way, then Pray. That's a great response to the trouble that you're in. Psalm 34 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. It's interesting to me that this last week in our nation, have you ever known a time when we've been talking as a nation about prayer as much as we have this last week? And that's all because of what happened on a football pitch last weekend. You'll know the story. Even if you're not into football, you'll know about Fabrice Mwamba. And I prayed for him and I'm sure many of you have as well. I believe, I believe, I don't know, but I believe that he's got faith and he's, he's in a faith situation in his family. I believe that. I don't know for fact, but that's what's being said. But Isn't it interesting how many people have been talking about prayer and have been talking about God? And yet as the week's gone on and as, he's got, as he has got better, which is great, nobody's talking about prayer and God now. Have you notice that? It's now how great the doctors are, and they are, and that's really important, and they were, they were amazing. But isn't it interesting that in that crisis moment, prayer and God become really center stage. In fact, I'm going to show you a picture. And please, as the picture comes up, I am not endorsing this newspaper in any way, shape or form. Okay? But this was the front page news on the biggest selling tabloid in this nation. God is in control. Isn't that amazing? Perhaps some kind of prophetic statement from the sun. There's a challenge for your theology, isn't it? (laughs) But it's interesting to me to see that and to be a part of that as a nation this week and to see that reflected around the globe as well, in Spain and in other countries where they play football. You know, how many people were saying, we're praying for him, we're praying for him. Now, whether they were or not, who knows? But that injury, if you're in trouble, pray. You can take, thank you. But then, of course, after that, local, closer to home, this week has been an awful week for people in our own local community. Think about the situation in Hagley. You know, just down the road from us, uh, where this week, if you don't know, I'm sure you do know, how a lad, 15 years of age, playing rugby, um, just collapsed and later in hospital died. And two of our lads from this church, here this morning, were on the pitch as well at that time. And uh, we want to pray for that situation. We. Uh, some of our youth guys have been down to the school this week. I've sent a letter to the head from us as a church. And, and I said to her, Caroline, we're going to pray for you on Sunday morning. I don't know where she's at with God or anything. We're going to pray for you. We're going to pray for the governors. We're going to pray for the staff. We're going to pray for Luke's family. And we're going to pray for the community around there as well. And then just yesterday, the crash that happened at Frankly with, um, with the coach and many lives devastated. And you know, these things happen, don't they? These things happen. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to pray for them. So would you join with me as we pray? Let's pray. Father, we just come to you this morning in Jesus' name. And Lord, we, you know, prayer and you have been almost elevated in the the nation's eye over this last week. And and we give you thanks for that. Whether that's genuine or not, we don't care because it's put you and put prayer on the agenda. And that's good. We give you thanks for that. But Lord, right now we want to pray for these situations that are close to home for many of us. Lord, we want to pray for this community in Hankley. We want to pray for Haybridge School. Father, I want to pray right now for the heads. I want to pray for the governors. I want to pray for the staff. I want to pray for all of the students and the families and everybody who's been impacted by this tragedy this week. Father, all we can do is to say, Lord, this is trouble, this is suffering, this is pain. Lord, we pray that the God of all comfort would be known in some way in that community, we pray. Lord, I pray that you'd help the kids especially to come to terms and process what they've seen or what they've experienced. And Lord, I pray for the family, specifically the family involved. Lord God, would you be with them, I pray in Jesus' name. And Lord, for this crash that happened yesterday as well. Lord, I pray for every person who's been impacted and the ripples of that that will go out in many families and communities. Lord, would you please, by your presence and by your grace, would you be known to them, I pray. God, as a people of God, we just want to say, Lord, our response is, we want to pray. We want to pray. We want to ask that you, God, would intervene, that you, God, would get involved, that you, God, would bring comfort, strength and hope to many, many people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. James then says, if you're happy, sing. Now, interesting thing is that I want to flip that a little bit, if I can, because in the New Testament, in the early church, in the New Testament, they didn't only sing when they were happy. They sang when they were sad. They didn't only sing when life was great. They sang when life was tough. They sang in prison. They sang when they were about to go out to Gethsemane. They sang because actually when you sing, you put great words on your lips and you speak faith out and it does something inside of you as well as blessing God. So a great response to life challenges, whether you're happy or not, is to sing. If you're happy, sing. But if you're not happy, I want to encourage you to sing because the Bible also teaches that. If you're sick, ask for prayer. Verse 14 and 15. And then here James mentions a specific ministry that elders have. Elders, we call these elders as well, not because they're old necessarily, but because that's a term of leadership in the New Testament for people who lead local congregations of church. And there's a specific ministry there that elders have that when you're sick, ask them to pray for you and they'll anoint you with oil. Now, that doesn't mean that other people can't pray for you and that other people can't anoint you with oil, but it is a specific thing that the elders are encouraged and told, instructed to do. Now, later on this morning, well, later on, in a few minutes, we're going to give you that opportunity and we're going to pray for you. And if any of you are sick, and we'll anoint you with oil. Now, the oil lives in a little box that looks like the Ark of the Covenant, but it's not, okay? It's not like a holy box and it's not holy oil. It's just oil in a box, okay? It's symbolic of God's healing power by his Holy Spirit. That's what it is. And we do that because that's what the Bible says that this is symbolic. We're not the the oil in itself is not gonna heal you. But we believe that God can and that we believe that God does. Now, here's a challenging verse for us in verse 15, where it says, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Now, we could read that literally, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Or, but if we do that, if we read that literally and think that's exactly what it means, then we're going to have a little bit of a conundrum here. Because many people take that so literally that what they believe it says is that if you have faith, you will be healed. That's not my belief. It might be yours, it's not mine. Because the problem is, if you believe that, like it's an equation, it's a formula, if you've got faith, you'll be healed. If you're not healed, therefore you've not got faith. Yet I know some people who've been healed with no faith or very little faith at all. And I know others who've not been healed who've had more faith than I've ever seen in another person. What I think it means is I think it means this is a faith-building statement. Faith is important. God does heal. God will heal. God wants to heal. So that prayer of faith is important. It's to encourage you to keep praying and keep pushing into God. The reality is sometimes people aren't healed in the way that we expect or want. That doesn't mean that we stop praying for the sick. Amen? In this church, we buried lots of people, uh, you know, many people, who, who we prayed for to be healed and they haven't been. And that's been great disappointment and great tragedy for us as a church. But we'll also, I want to tell you, we're going to st- keep praying for the sick. Because that's what the Bible tells us. And again, if you're sick, you can come tonight as well. And Mike's got the healing explosion tonight. Because we believe that God heals and he wants to heal. You know, F.B. Mayer, who's an old um, writer, said this, The greatest tragedy is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. And why I believe this text is so important is that James is saying, listen, some prayer, you know, know—you're not—you're not it's going to be difficult. There's a mystery to prayer. But the greatest tragedy is not unanswered prayer. It's unoffered prayer. So if you're sick this morning and you said, but I've been for prayer, I want to encourage you, go again. Go again. Keep going. Because God's doing something in you, even if you're not seeing that physical healing. God is doing something inside of you. Bringing you into that relationship with him. Doing things within you. And you don't know, you don't know at which time when you go for prayer that God might physically heal you. And that will be amazing. Then he says, if you're in sin, open up in verse 16. And this is what called confession. In other words, when you sin, don't just keep it to yourself. Tell somebody else about it so it comes into the light and you can be healed, is what James says. Now, it doesn't mean that if you're physically sick, that means that you're sinning. It doesn't mean that. What the word healed means there is a much broader context than physical healing. See, when we sin, when we hold on to dark stuff in our life and we don't deal with it, it affects us sometimes physically, but definitely spiritually and sometimes emotionally as well. And in the early church, there was this practice of confession where they would speak to each other and they would say the stuff that's going on in their lives. In fact, in um, the Methodist movement in the 1700s, when um, Charles uh, John Wesley was starting, he started small groups like our life groups. And they used to meet together in homes. And their opening question wasn't what kind of a week you've had or if you're a fruit, what kind of fruit would you be? It wasn't that. Their opening question, <laughs> their opening, pineapple, their opening question, <laughs> Their opening question was this, in what way this week have you in thought, word or deed sinned? That was their opener. That was the welcome. All right. So we'll try that this week at Life Group. That'll be great. All right. And they did that because they passionately believed that if we hold on to sin, it destroys us. But if we confess it, if we bring it into the light, if we ask someone to pray for us so that we wouldn't do it again, it takes the power out of it. Awesome, something we've lost in the church because now our religion is privatised. Now it's all about me and God and my TV and my worship CD. But that's not New Testament Christianity, you know that, don't you? We confess our sins one to another that we would be healed and we would be made whole. And then finally, if you're aware of someone struggling, those last two beautiful verses that James read for us, if, you, if somebody's wandered off from the truth, reach out. Reach out and try and bring them back. You won't always be able to do it. They've got their choice. But try and reach out and bring them back. So we want to receive this morning. We want to receive at the end of this, um, the end of this talk, and at the end of this fantastic book. And in a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come and to receive prayer this morning. It may be because you're troubled. And, and, that, and that might mean anything. That could mean that you're just distressed. It may be that you're struggling to wait patiently right now. It may be that you're sick this morning, physically or in any other way, and we want to pray for you. Maybe that you've got sin, and in some way you want to confess that, and you can do that. It may be that you're challenged in in, in an area of your life, and you're just struggling to hold on, but we want to pray for you. And and can I say, every time we respond, something good will happen inside of us. Do you know that? Every time we respond, God will do something. Even if we don't know it or feel it or understand it, God will do something. I want to finish with a final story and then we're going to pray. Hudson Taylor was this amazing missionary guy that was called to go out to China years and years ago. All right? And he's on a boat and it's a sailboat and he's heading out to China. And um, the wind completely died. So the boat is just drifting in the current. And the captain comes out and knocks on his cabin and he opens the cabin door and he says, Excuse me, Mr. Taylor, I know you're a man of God. We're in big trouble. The wind has died and we're drifting and we're drifting towards an island and the island is inhabited by cannibals. So please, could you, I'm not a man of God, but you are. Could you please talk to your God and ask him to send some winds? And Hudson Taylor looked at him and said, I'll do it on one condition. He said, why? He said, that you go and set the sail. The captain said, why would I set the sail? There's no wind. If you pray to your God and he sends the wind, then I'll set the sail. Hudson Taylor said, no, I'll only pray on the condition that you set the sail. So he went and he set the sail as, he, as Hudson Taylor told him to do. 45 minutes later, the captain came back and knocked on the door. Hudson, he opened the door. Hudson Taylor was on his knees praying. He'd been praying for 45 minutes. The captain said, please, Mr. Taylor, would you please stop? We've got more wind than we know what to do with right now. So please, could you stop? And, and the, point, the point of the story... The point of the story is that Hudson Taylor, that's a spiritual principle right there. We pray like it's all up to God. But you know what? We set the sail. We set the sail. We do something. We do what we can do. But we pray because, we, because only God can do what we can't. And I want to say this morning, if you're in trouble, setting the sail means receiving prayer. It might mean that you in your sin, but you need to do something to set the sail to catch what God and only himself can do and send into your life. And so we're going to set the sail this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing book of James. Lord, so practical, so down to earth, relevant and real. God, if we could just take this and not just hear it, but put it into practice. God, what an undiluted faith we'd have. And Lord, I pray that as we finish this series this morning, then as we begin to prepare ourselves for Easter, God, I really pray that you'll do something as we move from this season into the next. And Lord, that we won't lose what we've been going through these last few weeks, but we'll pick it up and sow these great seeds into our life. And Lord, I pray that in these few moments that there's anyone here that needs prayer, that God, that they'd set their sail this morning. They do what they can do. And then Lord, we'd ask you, the God of heaven, The God who loves us to send what we need into our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand together? I'm going to invite you this morning. If any of you need prayer, the ministry team are here, elders and leaders. If you need physical healing, we'll pray for you. We'll anoint you with oil. If you need any other kind of prayer, then it's open, okay? It's open. As we sing, I want to invite you to come. If any of you need prayer this morning, we would want to pray for you. Bless you.